Uh, good morning. You know, m- marriage is a funny thing. It's amazing. It's wonderful. And at other times, it can feel infuriating, right, or excruciating. And I think that causes a lot of people to wonder if it's even worth it. Uh, check out this statistic we're going to throw on the screen. In 1960, 72% of all adults were married. Today, only 48% of adults are married. That's a significant drop in just two generations. And it's in part because people are having a harder time believing that marriage is even worth it, right? They've lived through the difficulties, maybe themselves. Maybe they grew up in a home where marriage just wasn't a pretty thing. And they've decided, you know what? I think maybe marriage is just going to be too risky. And yet, right, this is a confused state of America, and yet, uh, according to a Gallup poll, over 90% of Americans still want to be married, right? whether they are or they were or they never have been. That's just so oddly fascinating to me. So we say, nah, I just, I, I couldn't do marriage but I kind of want to. But I just, don't, I just don't really think that it would work. But if it did, right? that's, just, that's our confused state of marriage in America in 2019. Now, no one out there was really saying, I don't believe in love. Right? People are still dreaming. We're writing ridiculously sappy songs about it. There's still, I can't even believe there's a genre called romantic comedy, right? Where it just ends where the bride and groom are kissing at the wedding and da 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 But the question I think that everyone is asking is, okay, great, love, but can we be happy even after? Even after the wedding, like when the real marriage begins. And so what we're going to do as a church is for four weeks in January, we're going to try and look at God's Word, the Bible, and find answers on how to have a godly and even happy marriage. One of the things I want to do is I want to challenge you to commit to coming to all four weeks of the series. So if you're here today, one of the reasons you might be here is because you're going, yeah, we, uh, we need some help with this. Well, this is great. Today will be great, but it's hard to get a whole lot of help in just 28 minutes, right? And so if you keep coming, you're going to get more help. If you don't have a New Year's resolution yet, I just gave you one. There you go. Uh, It'll be uh, wonderful. Welcome to 2019, by the way. You made it. I'm so proud of you. Okay. Now, I realize that in this size of a church that not all of you are married. Some of you are divorced. Uh, Some of you are widowed. Uh, Some of you are dating, some of you are single, some of you are 14. So, (laughs) right? And if you're 14, I'm excited you're here. It's good good that you're here too. Because some of you that aren't married, you are going to be married someday. And this is good advice to have now. And even if you feel like, I don't know if I'll ever get married, this is still good relationship advice that I think you can apply to all sorts of situations. And I want you to know that I do understand that there are a whole bunch of nuanced situations in this room. Some of you are going to be thinking through the series, okay, but what if my spouse isn't a believer? Or what if my spouse is about to leave me? You know, this is one of the reasons that we as a church have house groups. Because then you'll get a chance to join in the conversation and talk about your situation uh, this week even in house groups and get godly counsel from people. 
Uh, if you're not in a house group yet, that now over 80% of our adults are in one of our eight groups, I encourage you to stop by in the hallway. Uh, Tim Wilson out there, one of our uh, house leaders, would love to sign you up on your way out today, or you can sign up through the church app uh, as well. Okay, let me say one more sort of preface thing before we dive into today's topic. The majority of you in this room, at some point during this series, are going to feel pretty challenged. Maybe even uncomfortable. Maybe even angry. When you feel those things, because that's what sometimes God's word does to us. When you feel those things, what I want for you to do is measure... Okay, was that just something that some dude from Blaine is saying on a stage? Or was that from God's word? Because if it was from God's word, then it's worth living out, even if it's difficult. Okay, Uh, one of the things that I feel like as I've looked at marriages in my years of pastoral ministry, and especially in the last couple of years, one of the things I feel like I've really noticed is that way too many people nowadays feel disappointed by their marriage. You know, some feel so disappointed that they get a divorce. Others of you in this room, you've been thinking, playing around in your mind about possibly getting a divorce. Many of you feel sort of trapped, like you're in a marriage that isn't giving you any real sense of joy, mostly just disappointment. Everyone in this room, right, we've all experienced disappointment, unless you're living in some Disney fairy tale, which none of you are, we know what it's like to feel disappointment, but I'm mainly talking about why is it that so many people feel stuck in this state of disappointment in their marriage? And I want to submit to you this morning that the main reason we feel such disappointment in marriage is because we've placed the wrong expectations upon our marriage. So what I want to do is I want to cover three ways to feel disappointed in marriage. Okay, so these are three things not to believe. So don't write this down like, do this. No, no, no. There's three things that if you believe these, then you're just going to feel disappointed. And these are three really common beliefs that the culture around us has. But before we jump into those, we need to actually look to the Bible, to the Word of God, because we're going to see it's really different from the culture if you want to follow along with the text this morning, uh, there's a Bible under every chair. We're going to be on page 949. Uh, or you can use the Renovation Church app. You just have Bible and weekly verses. We're going to be in Ephesians uh, chapter 5. And we're going to compare and contrast what the world says and what God says. So Ephesians chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 21. This is a section about marriage. Paul says, submit to one another. So both people are going to do this here. You're going to see how wives are going to do it, and you're going to see how husbands are going to do it. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. 
For we are members of his body. For this, now he's going to quote from the book of Genesis here. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, we're going to keep coming back to this, but let's start looking at these ways to be disappointed. So here's the first way to just feel disappointed in your marriage. You do this. You measure your marriage by what you're feeling. You live by that, you're going to feel disappointment. However, this is the predominant way that our culture in America tells us to assess the state of our marriage. We ask, do I feel in love? Now, I've been a pastor for about 15 years now, and so I've sat across from all sorts of couples over the years, and I can't tell you how many people I've sat across from, and they've said, David, I, I'm going to get a divorce. And we start talking, and usually they'll say something like, I just can't stand the other person anymore. I don't feel in love. And so what we do is we measure the success of our marriages by our feelings. And if we don't feel in love, and instead what we feel, because listen, I'm, I'm not saying like they're sitting across from me going, I just don't feel head over heels. They're, they're going, no, seriously, I hate them. I'm annoyed by them. I'm frustrated by them. I cannot stand the sight of them. But what are those things? Those are still feelings, right? And we're saying, my feelings are telling me that my marriage isn't successful anymore, so thus it's time for it to end. Now let me say something really important that I need to say before we go any further in this series. Let's talk about divorce just for 45 seconds, because it's going to come up throughout this series. Now the scripture is is really clear on this. Divorce is wrong. Uh, God even says in the book of Malachi that he hates it. And he hates it because of what it does to people, and what it does to families. But this is a church that we follow scripture, which means also that we believe in forgiveness. Okay, so if you're here and you're divorced, there are no second-class citizens in this church. There's divorced people are not second-class citizens. We believe in forgiveness, right? We all sin, and we can all be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, okay? All right, good. We got it established. Now, if you've been here for some time, uh, one of the things you might know about me is I, I love studies. And my favorite type of studies is a longitudinal study. And if you don't know what that is, a longitudinal study is where they track someone over a long period of time, not just ask them a certain question at one time. There was an important longitudinal study that was done about a marriage, and they discovered a fascinating thing. They discovered that two-thirds of marriages, when they initially asked them, you know, at whatever point in the marriage they were at, they said, are you happy? Two-thirds of the people that said, no, I am not happy in my marriage. Two-thirds of them were happy again within five years when they asked them five years later, as long as they just stayed married and didn't get divorced. And the study didn't even say, hey, if the people go to counseling and they work really hard on it, then it turns out that five years later they were happy. It just said, as long as the people just stayed married, what they found was five years later, 66% of them identified as happy in their marriage. Now, if they went to counseling, well, even higher, right? By the way, I believe that every married couple, let's take, the, let's take away the stigma of this. Every married couple ought to go to counseling. 
at least once, maybe twice in their marriage. This thing's hard. Yeah, I know that I'm a a relatively young guy for a lead pastor of a church. I turn uh, 37 in a few weeks. Apparently, I'm so young, I'm still rounding up my age. I don't know know if you caught that or not. But I got married young, and so I've been married for about 15 years now, which puts me ahead of about, well, second service, maybe 80% of you, right? And I've learned a few things in marriage. For example, marriage is a lot like what we say in this church a lot about faith. It's a roller coaster. Right? It's up and down. Apologies to my wife for having to live with me through the downs. And sometimes the downs can feel pretty low. Sometimes they can feel pretty long. But what we know about the roller coaster is what goes down usually comes back up. I mean, if you talk to any couple, not someone who's been married for five years, you talk to some couples in this room or outside of here that have been married for 40 years, 50 years. And what they will tell you is you're going to have many difficult stretches in your marriage. In fact, you're probably going to have three, maybe four, maybe even five really difficult stretches over a period of 40 or 50 years. You see, after winter comes spring, if you keep with it, if you don't measure your marriage just by what you're feeling. And so you get to see spring after winter if you remember that in the Bible, marriage is what's called, this is one of the most important words in Scripture, it's what's called a covenant. A covenant in the Bible is a binding promise that you don't revoke. And so we're going to keep coming back to this principle a lot in this series. And this is something I've said to you a thousand times before, and I will say it to you ten thousand times more because I believe it's that important for marriage. And it's this. It's marriage, the covenant of. It's marriage that keeps love alive. Not love that keeps marriage alive. What keeps love alive over 40 years is that you are committed to each other in this covenant in sickness or in health, right? Richer or poorer. In good times, in bad times. It's the commitment to weather any storm that allows you to actually experience happily even after. I mean, what does the scriptures, what do they say that marriage is supposed to be? Uh, Paul, who's the author of this letter in Ephesians, says that marriage is a reflection of the relationship that Jesus has with his church, his bride. Husbands are supposed to love their wives like Jesus did. Husbands, how did he love us? He loves us by telling us that he's in a covenant with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us no matter where we go, no matter what we do. That's his covenant with us and marriage is meant to be a reflection of that. In, in preparation for the series, I've been uh, reading two fantastic books. Uh, sometimes I don't always share with you what I'm reading, but I just feel like they were so helpful. I want to put them on the screen. You can get your phone out, take a picture of it if you want. If you're looking to just dive more into this topic, uh, these are two marriage books that I'd really recommend to you. Uh, the first one is Gary Thomas's Sacred Marriage, uh, and the second one is uh, from my hero, uh, Timothy Keller, uh, The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, take a picture of it, order on Amazon. It's just it's a simple thing, you know, whatever it is, 10 bucks. It's a simple way to start working on your marriage. I want to show you what Timothy Keller in his book says about this a subject that we're talking about right now. He says this, years ago, I attended a wedding, 
in which the couple wrote their own vows. They said something like this, I love you and I want to be with you. The moment I heard it, I realized what all historic Christian marriage vows had in common, regardless of their theological and denominational differences. The people I was listening to were expressing their current love for each other. I was fine and moving, but that is not what marriage vows are. That's not how a covenant works. Wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. A wedding should not be primarily a celebration of how loving you feel now. That can safely be assumed. Rather, in a wedding, you stand up before God, your family, and all the main institutions of society, and you promise to be loving, faithful, and true to the other person in the future, regardless of internal feelings or external circumstances. To truly, you want to know what love is? To truly love someone isn't just to feel something for them, it's to be committed to them no matter what. Before we get to this uh, next reason, let me, let me just tell you something. This topic of, of marriage and relationships is just heavy on our church right now. And so we want to do everything we can to help you. And so we want to give you a lot of practical help too. So how do you weather some of these storms? How do you manage conflict and arguments better in your marriage? And so for the first time ever, uh, we are going to be offering a free marriage seminar uh, at, at our church. Um, it's actually going to be at our church offices, ministry center, which is over by Carol's uh, in Blaine. And the marriage seminar, totally free, is going to be offered the next three Saturdays from 9 a.m. to noon. Uh, listen, if you can make, I would say, at least two of those, preferably if you can make all three, and you know this would be helpful to you in your marriage, I encourage you to sign up for them. You can in the hallway. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet, or you can under the Connect tab of our app. Uh, the seminar is going to be taught by Dave Anderson from our church, who is a man that I greatly respect. Uh, Dave is an attender at our church, but he was a pastor for 40 years. Uh, he has his degree in marriage and family therapy, and he's been married for 47 years. And so he's going to be drawing on the wisdom and the teaching of many experts, showing some clips from them, and just he's got a lot of wealth of knowledge himself. Now, this seminar, uh, which I believe would be really helpful, is limited because we can only fit so many people in the basement of our offices uh, to 20 couples. And the last time I checked before I came in, I think we're already at 12 or 13. And so there's only uh, seven or eight spots remaining. But if this is helpful to you, I encourage you to uh, sign up for it. Get some more help in this. Okay, let's move on now to the second way you're just going to feel disappointed in marriage if you believe this particular thing. So the second thing is this. Believe that your spouse, that their purpose, believe that your spouse is there to fulfill and serve you. Now, this is a big one. You know, today, it's really different than yesteryear. You know, when people were maybe getting married uh, because they wanted someone to do life with, someone to raise a family with, someone to serve God with. Instead, today, our culture tells us that you should find someone who accepts you as you are and fulfills your desires, that makes you happy. Now, if you're thinking I'm making some sort of, like, cheap straw man argument, I assure you that I am not. All right, if you're married, I want you to think back to before you were married. What were you looking for in a spouse? Now, unless you were super, super spiritually mature, it's good for you, right? The rest of us 
were looking for someone who was what? You tell me. Attractive, right? I'm going with number one. Attractive, right? And number two, you maybe thought, someone who just makes you happy. You like being, they make you happy when you're around them, right? Someone who maybe take care of you, someone who just liked you for who you are. Well, what are those things? Right? We basically wanted what I just said earlier. We wanted someone who would fulfill our desires and make us happy. Now, for the single people in the room, I'm not saying that you ought to go out and date someone who makes you miserable and that will fulfill the word of God. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we come into marriage that way. Oh, they are so dreamy and they make me so happy, right? You come into marriage that way and we kind of keep walking out in that way And what happens, that sort of consumeristic cultural belief that we place on marriage, it will make you disappointed. I mean, just on a real surfacey level, for the young people in the room, I hate to break it to you, but the person you're dating or you're thinking about dating, their looks are going to (laughs) change as they get older. And so are yours, right? Ladies in the room, that man in your life that you're idealizing right now, you just started dating, he might have a six-pack right now. But at 45, the, I don't know how to diplomatically say this, uh, chances are low, right? Okay? So things change over time. Secondly, when you enter a marriage and you, everything kind of behind it is, I love them, they're, they're, they're amazing, they kind of make me happy, they fulfill me, you're really setting yourself up for disappointment. Okay, what happens? You get married, it's dreamy, it's wonderful. What happens if 10 years into the marriage, the person you married gets a chronic illness? And they're not really able to serve you or fulfill you at all. I think sometimes, nowadays, we just, we, we fail to see marriage from the other person's perspective. One of the things that's really weird about Americans is even though we believe in marriage less than ever, Americans' expectations for what they should get out of marriage are higher than ever. Like most Americans, we want this spouse that's going to make us happy and serve us and fulfill us, and yet we would prefer that that same spouse not put any demands on us or constraints on us. That's, that's weird, right? That's crazy. We want, we want them to do everything they can to make us happy, fulfill us, serve us, but make kind of re- no real demands on us. Well, what are you talking about? Do you, you know what you're looking for? You're looking for a robot. Okay, that's what you're looking for. See, but the Bible's description of marriage is entirely different. And I would say to you, it is much more helpful than the culture's. Okay, look at verse 21 again in our passage. It says, Submit. This is surrender. This is to serve one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, This is, in Christianity, this is what we call mutual submission in marriage. And so wives are told to submit to their husbands like they do to Jesus, to serve them, to live in such a way that their husbands can feel respected, as verse 33 says, and loved and supported to follow Christ. Now, a lot of people read that. I get it. It's 2019. They're like, wives, submit to your husband like you do. Like, what? Like, what, what century is this from, right? You know, if you think that 
Husbands are getting off easy. Keep, keep, keep reading, right? Because this is mutual submission. It says, okay, what does it say about husbands? It says, husbands are told to love their wives as Christ did for the church. What did Christ do for the church? Oh, yeah, murdered for it, right? Sacrificed. So saying to husbands that you, for the sake of your wife, are supposed to live completely sacrificially. Right, that you would sacrifice all your selfish desires for the sake of your wife. That you could love her and support her in following Jesus. This is so different. It's 180 degrees different than the rest of the culture. See, the world looks at marriage as an opportunity for you to find someone that they can serve you and make you happy. And Christians are to look at marriage as an opportunity for you to find someone that you can serve and make happy. And if you've read through the Bible before, I mean, this actually shouldn't be that shocking. I mean, what does the Bible say about just person-to-person interaction? Of Philippians 2, Paul says, this is the task of the Christian, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. And we've been reading this in the Gospels in Luke this year, how much Jesus talks about putting other people above you. He says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, the famous chapter on love. What is it? Well, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, I think we know this, right? If I say, well, how are you supposed to treat other people as a Christian? You say, I'm supposed to love them, you know, put their needs before me. This is almost Sunday school level stuff. But it's like as Christians, then when we come to our marriages, person-to-person interaction, it's like we take all these Christian principles and we chuck them out the window. And we look to the other person and we say, they're just not making me happy. And we feel bitterly disappointed. And they're not treating me like they should. And they're not doing anything with their life. That is difficult to be around. And I think this ties in really well to the third way that you're just going to feel really disappointed if you bring this belief to marriage. And that is this. Determine that the real problem in your marriage is your spouse. Uh, This is what I would call the great stalemate to marriage. Right, so like any marriage, you fall in love, right? It's kind of infatuation at first and everything's going great and you get about a year in or whatever until you have that conversation like, hey, baby, what do you want for dinner? I don't know, what do you want? Oh, yeah, that last, you always, no, no, we had, right? And then it's all of a sudden, like six months later, it's like, how come I'm cooking all the time? Well, you're not cooking. And pretty soon it's, you know what I've been noticing? You never clean up. Why am I cleaning up all the time? And pretty soon the guy's saying back, he's like, oh, can you just stop asking me to share my feelings? Right? I just, can, and I, can I just go hang out with my buddies for, for one night? And then it's like, I feel like you don't even know how to talk to me. Right? And everything's sort of escalating. And what happens in marriage is we develop this great long list of what this sinner that we live with needs to change. And we falsely believe that if they would just go to work on changing themselves, then 
we could be happy in our marriage again. See, and it's that belief right there that's leading to such disappointment for so many people in marriage. You've got a list. They aren't doing it. And so you're stuck in disappointment. But the Bible tells you how to get unstuck. How to get out of disappointment. It's mutual submission. It's the message of Ephesians 5. And mutual submission starts with you. You find joy in your marriage again, counterintuitively to the culture. You find joy by serving the other person, not just waiting for them to serve you. Now listen, I get it's 2019, right? This idea of like, okay, your marriage is meant for you to serve the other person, that people are going to feel like that's regressive or that's oppressive. I assure you it is not. It is the way to happily even after. Uh, Gary Thomas says it this way, and I hope this is helpful to you. He says, you won't find happiness at the end of a road called selfishness. Just waiting for the other person to go through the list and make you feel happy and serve you is insane. Look at our culture right now. Check the divorce rate, because this is the philosophy that our culture is using. It's not working. But if you trust in God's way, you start serving the other person. And I know some of you are thinking, they're just going to take advantage of me. It's never going to work. If you just trust God, you start serving the other person. What happens so often is the other person notices a change in you. They're experiencing your, your service, your love, your forgiveness, your sacrifice. And those are the things that soften a person's heart to begin to love you back. And that's how the cycle works. But you're just going to be disappointed if you keep looking and saying, oh, you know who the real problem is here? It's them. They need to change. What did Paul write in Ephesians? We're both supposed to take the initiative to serve, to sacrifice, to love. There's no such thing as, well, as long as they're doing a good job serving and loving me, then I'll start obeying what the scripture says and actually serving and sacrificing them. No, 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 no. What's our model as Christians? It's Romans 5.8. For Christ died for us, when? While we were still sinners. He didn't wait for you to earn his service, love, and sacrifice. He didn't wait for you to be good enough. That's the gospel. You can think of it this way. There was a couple who was married for 16 or 17 years, and they began to have more than just the usual disagreements, and they wanted to make their marriage work. They were willing to try anything, and their wife had, the wife had this idea. So for one month, they decided that they would drop a slip in what they called the fault box, and they each had one, for every time they found annoyance or fault with the other person, right? And rather than just saying right to their face, like, I can't believe you never want... It was just, hey, right in here. I'll just drop it in at the end of the month. They'll find the list. Now, the wife in particular was diligent with her efforts and approach. <laughs> People laugh at that first service. I'm not trying to be funny with this, but... All right, maybe it's... I don't care. I'm not going to say anything. And so she just kept writing notes, right? Like, leaving the jelly top off the jelly jar. Right? Wet towels on the floor. 
dirty socks not in the hamper. And the husband, too, all month long, just dropping notes in. Right, we got to the end of the month. Husband pulls out just endless. The box actually got bigger throughout the month. I'm just kidding. And so he pulls out the notes, and it's just one after another, and he's reading them, and it's kind of hard to read through. Well, it's the wife's turn, and she opens her box. She looks at the first one and goes, huh? She opens the second one. She just keeps pulling them out, and every note said the exact same thing. It said, I love you. I love you. I just love you. I love you. I want you to think about this. Because that's the gospel. He loves you. God loves you despite your faults. He loved you first. Remember, God didn't woo you to follow him by giving you a list of things that you needed to change first. How did he do it? How did he do it? How did God capture your heart to change your life and start following him? How did he do it? He wooed you with his sacrifice, with his service, with his love, with his forgiveness. That's how people are moved. And that is how you will change your marriage, by imitating him. Let me pray. Lord, I just, I pray over the hundreds of marriages in this church that you would empower us to imitate you and not the culture, God. We believe that your ways are powerful, that they are effective. But God, we believe this is hard and that it's a long road, God. And may you empower us to stay committed to each other and to you so that we may reflect your grace and forgiveness. In your name we pray. Amen.